This is Exchanges of Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today's episode is all about commodities, from what's been driving recent volatility, to the role of shale in 2019, to the impact of geopolitical risks around trade and OPEC, and much, much more. To talk through all of this, we're joined by our very own Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research in Goldman Sachs Investment Research. Jeff, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with the big sell-off that closed out the year 2018 and the rebound we've seen since. What's driving these big swings in commodity prices, and do you expect that to continue in 2019? Well, let's talk about what was fundamental and then what was sentiment. And if we begin with the fundamental shifts with energy... You had U.S. foreign policy that disappointed many of the oil producers in terms of providing sanctions around Iranian exports. So I would say that was the actual trigger event. You look at the picture, you have much more supply out of Iran than what most people initially thought. That created the initial sell-off. But it involved many more assets than oil within about two to three weeks later. You had the equity markets, the credit markets, all of them beginning to participate in a large sell-off. That I would chalk up to more sentiment than fundamentals. Yes, we saw a weakening in the underlying macro data during that time period, but nothing to justify the magnitude of that sell-off that we saw. The way I'm interpreting what happened really is that the market got too excited over the term global synchronous growth back in late 2017 and really 2018. This created a substantial rally in risk assets. But now that we look at the hard data and we look back at 2018, it was really kind of mid-cycle. So we use the term late cycle. We're going to have a cyclical upswing that's consistent with late cycle economic activity. That's going to drive commodity prices substantially higher. The reality is it was much more mid-cycle. And if you actually just look at the survey data relative to the hard data towards the end of 2018, what we see is the survey data just came back in line with our data. So the way I like to think about what happened in December wasn't that we had an absolute collapse in expectations and economic activity, but rather the exuberance that we priced into the market in late 17 and 18 was really taken out of the market. To make this point, let's just look at oil prices. Today, they're about $60 a barrel. Where were they in late 2017 before global synchronous growth was the buzz? They were at $60 a barrel. Copper was at $6,000 then. It's at $6,000 now. Equity market valuation, the average over the post-crisis era, 14 and a half. Where did it trade down to? 14 and a half. The list goes on and on. We just essentially unwound all that exuberance over that time period. So one of the interesting turns last year was this hiatus in what you call the new oil order, which is the era of low-cost shale and relatively easy supply, and the U.S. being a big swing producer. Is shale back in the driver's seat this year as you see it? Let's first define what we mean by the new oil order. The shale technology, which is fast cycle, flattened out the oil supply curve. If we go back to the 1990s and the 2000s when you'd have explosive oil prices or even the 70s, it was because the supply curve had a hockey stick formation. It was very, very steep out on the end. Part of that steepness was because it would take years to bring on supply, meaning that if I did a big deep water offshore platform, it would require 
tens, twenties of billions of dollars, and it would take five plus years to bring online. In contrast, shale requires a couple million dollars and in some cases can be brought on online in 14 days. So what it does, it flattens out that supply curve. So when we came up with the idea of the new oil order, we realized that if you don't have that steepness in that supply curve, it changes the behavior of OPEC. Think about if you're OPEC. If you know that the non-OPEC players take five years to bring on supply, you can cut supply yourself, let price go up, and not worry about losing market share. But when shale is active, if they let prices go too high, they lose market share. So what happened in late 17 for us to call a hiatus to the new oil order? It was several factors. One was that we had pipeline capacity constraints coming out of the Permian Basin in the middle of the United States. So you couldn't grow that shale as quickly as you could before. The second factor was that we had problems getting on some of the non-OPEC ex-US production. And then the third factor was demand was much stronger than what we thought. It started pulling us out towards that hockey stick. So now I'm OPEC, I'm looking at it. You got the green light to start cutting back production without the potential losing market share. I'm not going to say they weren't completely losing market share. They did lose a lot of market share last year, but not to the same extreme if you just had completely de-bottleneck shale production. So we're calling the new oil order back online again. And the reason why we see that is that the investment that we have seen in pipelines in 2018, and we're beginning to see in early 2019, will be sufficient to de-bottleneck the Permian such that you can start to see that rapid growth in shale again. The question then becomes, what does this do to prices in 2019? Well, you downgraded prices recently. Is this the reason why? Absolutely. Well, actually, there's two reasons. I'm not going to completely discount all that noise we saw in December. We did see a sharp ramp up in production in anticipation of the Iranian sanctions going into play in November. When that didn't happen, you had all that excess supply left over that created an inventory build and put downward pressure on prices. Part of our forecast revision in which we took 2019 prices to $62.50 from $70 per barrel. That downward revision had two components. One was that excess inventory created by the Iranian sanctions not going into the same effect as initially thought. The second has to do with this debottlenecking of shale. Because when you debottleneck the shale, you lower the cost structure, you move yourself back to the new oil order. So those are the two real core reasons why we lowered our price forecast. On the demand side, you've said we're in basically a new kind of oil cycle that we're unlikely to see the demand pick up in the same extent that it has in late business cycles in the past. Talk a little bit about the dynamics that are at play there. I like to say we got hoodwinked by sentiment in 2018. And one of the reasons why we thought we were going to get that late cycle uptick was because the survey data was so strong towards the end of 2017. Now, again, going back to that buzz, global synchronous growth. And when you get a late cycle uptick, it usually substantially increases the demand for oil and commodities. So, you know, I'll give you an example why you get that big upswing. Let's say you have a bulldozer and you're doing construction. Once that construction really begins to pick up late cycle, you're turning on a lot of bulldozers. And so the cyclical upswing in diesel demand is massive as you become late cycle. What happened was we didn't get that late cycle uptick. 
And it was embedded in core reason why we were very bullish on commodities going into this time period. So if you look at you know our numbers to give you an idea, we had forecast oil demand growth of 1.8 million barrels per day a year ago. It turned out to be 1.5. Now we think about 1.5 million barrels per day. What do you think the average is in the post-crisis era? 1.5. By the way, it goes back to my point. Everything is really kind of boring right now. This has been a long, drawn-out cycle with not much variation around it. However, when we look at what happened in 2018, there was another dynamic, and we called it the terrible trio. The terrible trio are rising rates, stronger dollar, and higher oil prices. You put those three together, it's very punishing to emerging markets. Places like Brazil, we saw a truck strike in Brazil in 2018. Places like India. Historically, when you look at the terrible trio, and when they occur, it's usually a signal of two things, a mid-cycle pause or an outright recession. We should have heeded that observation more seriously last year. Why didn't we? Because we thought the dollar would weaken, take off the pressure, and oil prices could continue to go back up without doing too much damage to demand. So now we look at the current environment. It's relatively average underlying GDP growth going forward. But we look at the economic or macro backdrop. It's actually very supportive to oil and commodities. Why? We can comfortably say the Fed is on pause. We're unlikely in a recession. That's classic mid-cycle pause. A mid-cycle pause is a buy signal for oil and commodities. So that's point number one. Point number two, the strong dollar backdrop has turned into a weak dollar backdrop. We've started the year with substantial weakening in the dollar. Again, that creates a tailwind to higher commodity prices. Primarily correlated to the expectations around the Fed. There's two factors when you think about it. The expectational channel is really important there. But there's another one when you just think about places like Brazil last year. When you had a very strong dollar and you looked at oil prices at $85 a barrel, to the rest of the world, even the UK, they were higher to the rest of the world than they were in 2008 when we were at $147 a barrel. So it creates a lot of economic hardship for many parts of the world that are not dollar-based. In fact, I like to say there's always a super cycle in commodities going on in the world. Just pick your currency. Yeah. And so when we think about what happened in 2008, the U.S. was the one that needed to slow down its consumption of oil. So the price of oil exploded in dollars, but because the dollar was so weak, the rest of the world didn't feel the pain. Last year, when we went to $85 a barrel, the dollar was so strong, places like Brazil had like equivalent of $300 a barrel. So it was very, very punishing. Our key reasons why you've got a tailwind is one, rates, Fed is on hold, dollar is weaker. The other big one is positioning in these markets is very light. You've lost a lot of the key investors in these markets in that sell-off that occurred in December. So that you think about the current environment, the market's not that long, which means as the market gets long, it'll likely go higher. Another key reason why we think we want to be bullish in 2019 has to do with OPEC. OPEC brought a lot of supply on anticipation of Iran. But again, like I said before, a lot of that has been unwound. And you likely see OPEC, and we see the evidence already, they're going to cut production to take out that excess inventory that was built up. Final reason on wanting to be bullish on oil and commodities really has to do with China. It's always very critical to the outlook for oil and commodities is that China's growth has been running a little bit below 6%. 
to hit their policy targets at the end of 2020 means they got to have 6% growth. They can't sustain too long of a period below 6%. They're running in that low fives right now. So we think policy is likely to stimulate as we go into 2019. So it's a very robust backdrop for oil demand. But I do want to go into your question about the cyclicality of commodities and cyclicality of the business cycle. We know enough to know it's very different. And there's two key factors that we like to point out there. One is that if we look at the durability of commodity consumption or the consumption of durables in the economy, particularly in places like the U.S., it has dropped sharply. We don't consume as many white goods, recreational equipment, houses, and things of that nature. That's important because big-ticket items create the cyclicality. But it's not only in big-ticket items. You know, I like to look at my Apple Watch here. The old days, I would buy a watch. That would be the only one I would buy for 10-plus years. Now you're updating them every two years. So we don't have that same duration to consumption we like we had before, which means you take out some of that cyclicality. So I like to say in the developed markets, the amplitude of the cycle has been reduced. The second factor has to do with what's going on in the emerging markets, particularly China. They like to micromanage financial and fundamental imbalances. And this is important because they'll do it counter-cyclically to the U.S. So if the U.S. is really strong and they're consuming a lot of the exports out of China, what does China do? They delever their debt. So they slow down the stimulus to the system. When the U.S. is weak, that's when they typically stimulate. So it's a counter-cyclical stabilizing factor to what's going on into the U.S. And so what we're left with was higher frequency in the cycles in places like China. So you put the two together, more likely the cycles are faster with less amplitude, but it feels like they're longer and flatter, but they would still look very much the same. So how do you think about geopolitical risk as we enter the new year, particularly around trade, where there's been a lot of noise, and OPEC? You can divide the geopolitical risk into three categories. Trade, foreign policy, and the government shutdown that's currently underway. Let's start with trade. As we go into the year, I think both parties are in a position where they've got to come up with some type of a deal. I know at this point, consensus view is this thing's going to go on and on. But you're starting to see a substantial hit to overall global trade. Global trade has dropped from running around 6% growth to somewhere around 3%. So it's starting to have a material impact. And I don't think either party wants to see this get much worse in the current environment. So we'll see if 2019 brings a deal there. Clearly, I think that the consensus views has gone away that this is going to go on forever to a higher probability that you get a deal. I think obviously a deal would be very beneficial to emerging market assets as well as to commodities. Let's go to the second one, which is foreign policy. For us in commodities, this has a huge impact. Whether if it was the sanctions on Rusal and the impact that it's had on aluminum, but even much larger the impacts that the macro space were the Iranian sanctions. And by the way, what I find kind of interesting is these are all beneficial to the old economy, whether it's aluminum, steel, where you see the tariffs, and then in the case in oil, it is Iran. That ended up being a very uncertain environment, particularly back in October and November, because 
Most market participants viewed that there was a very high probability that the United States was going to take Iran down to zero exports. That's why you had people building precautionary inventories around this. You had the OPEC countries beginning to ramp up production. But the foreign policy in the U.S. was very surprising because they actually issued a high number of sanctions that were unexpected. So you had much more Iranian oil supply. As we sit here, it's early January, and the government is currently shut down. It illustrates these broader policy risks that are associated with the government. I think it just illustrates the economic and policy uncertainty that is rampant in these markets recently. And you think about what does that impact? It impacts long cycle investment, which really brings us back to the commodity story. We're not getting the investment that we need when we start to think on a much longer term basis. Last year on the podcast, you talked a bit about cryptocurrencies, and you explained that one angle out there in the public was to view crypto as a commodity. Obviously, a lot's transpired since then in the crypto market. It's had its own issues and volatility. How do the, today's options stack up against other stores of value like gold? The biggest takeaway from price action in cryptocurrency last year was the high level of volatility, both to the upside and to the downside. The advantage that gold has is it doesn't have that same type of volatility. So if you want to store a value, you want something that, hey, if I buy it and I put it in storage and I pull it out six months later, it's going to have a value, you hope, a little bit higher than what it was when you put it in storage. The problem with those cryptocurrencies, you have no idea. The volatility is hundreds of percents collapsing by 50%. When we look at gold, it went up 5 10% in some of those periods, that's much more reasonable store of value. And, I, I, and I'm going to go back to the point that I made a year ago. When we think about what is the economic problem that a cryptocurrency solves, first let's ask what its physical characteristics are. It's the very first time we could take electronic or digital money off the grid. We've had electronic money for decades. But what was different is you could take it off the grid and put it in your pocket in one of those little key fobs and walk away. Now, what are the economic reasons you'd want to do that? Twofold. One, to conceal that money from the government or somebody else, hide it. Or two, because you have no banking grid in which you could use. So one is for illegal reasons or gray market, like to say. The second one is because you don't have a banking system. What regions in the world don't have banking systems? some of the emerging markets. So there is a real legitimate reason, but it's relatively small. And then we look at gold. Gold is a well-established, has institutional arrangements, has custodial capabilities. We put it all together. You look at gold, it is still an excellent store of value. So as I said a year ago, we still like gold. You know, I like to point out then was that Last year, cryptocurrencies had about five years of trading history to them. Now they have six. Gold has 3,000 years of trading history. So I'm going to stick with my gold. Okay. So commodities, and when we talk about commodities, oil gets a lot of the attention, but there's obviously some other really important ones. Let's tick through some of them. What's your outlook for nat gas? The line I like to use for natural gas is long-term surpluses create near-term shortages. Why is that? Very much like the new oil order and the oil story, we have excess natural gas due to the shale revolution. This excess surplus puts downward pressure on long-term prices. We have a long-term surplus out there that just cannot be resolved. 
You've built a lot of pipelines out of the Marcellus, which is the big producing basin in the Northeast. These pipes start to come online this year. It's more than adequate to meet all of the LNG demand, the power demand, the industrial demand. So we got more than enough gas than we possibly need. However, those pipelines are not there yet. So that's why I argue long-term surpluses create the near-term shortage because prices get too low. You create too much demand from like power generation. And then you get caught short like we did in November of last year, and prices begin to explode on the front end, but they never moved on the back end. Again, that long-term surplus. As we go into 2019, more and more of those pipes come online. That surplus starts to become reality. And so right now, prices are trading you know, around $3 in MMBTU. That long-term surplus number is $2.75. So by the end of this year, we think we'll have arrived at those long-term surpluses, and that's why our forecast is $2.75. How about some of the metals, copper, and aluminum you mentioned, but what's your outlook on those? I'd like the listeners to know that Jake does have a commodity background. An aluminum boy. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, in terms of aluminum and copper, the story in the metal space is really what we call a value proposition. Prices have dug down to the cost curves across these different markets. Why? They were severely impacted by the trade war. In terms of thinking about the manufacturing sector in China, consumes on the copper side 50% of the world's copper. So if you slow down that manufacturing sector, you're going to have a significant impact on copper dance. So that pushed prices back down to the cost structure. And we've been bouncing around those levels since July of last year. We're bullish in 2019, not because we think you're going to get a resolution to the trade war, but more so from the macro backdrop. And as we talked about it before, you've got a lot of tailwinds to these markets. Let's start with China because it's the largest consumer. Economic growth is sub 6%. They need to hit those targets at 6% by 2020. More likely than not, they're going to stimulate, which really begins to help the demand from China. So that's one reason. The other reason is you got the Fed on pause. That creates a weaker dollar environment. And for metals, the dollar is really important because then it goes to that negative correlation that you're referring to that's very dominant in the metal space. So you get a weaker dollar, stronger China. That's where we see the upside. Our targets on copper are $7,000 a ton. It's currently trading around $6,000. So it's one of our stronger views. What's something in the commodities market that's not getting enough attention that you think deserves a little bit more focus? I would argue it's this idea that spot prices solve surpluses, forward prices solve shortages. We had a commodity boom a decade ago. We still have a lot of commodity supply out there, whether if it is in places like China, the shales we talked about with the new oil order. Now, let's go over why you need a spot price to solve these problems. When you have a shortage, you need to attract capital to the markets to make investments. What's the best way to do that? Lock in the returns, because then you don't have uncertainty about prices crushing you and you're not getting return on, in many cases, multi-billion dollar investments. So if you need to solve a shortage, you turn to forward long-term prices. And what we're seeing in these markets is that more of the activity is moving to the spot price, which is consistent with the idea that we have a surplus. So go back to this idea, spot prices solve surpluses, long-term contracts or forward prices solve shortages. And I want to talk about it even in the context of 
the economic and political uncertainty that you were referring to recently, and we can see it in the survey data. When you look at the survey data, what is declining in the survey data are new orders. What it's telling you is people are unwilling to commit to forward volumes. And so when you have a lot of uncertainty, too much excess supply, what happens is you see more and more of the market gravitate to the front end or to the spot basis. Now, right now, what that does is it creates a very liquid front end physical market, but it starts to discourage the investment. And I've used this term before and before is we have inadequate long cycle investment because of so much uncertainty. This is the real story with copper and to a lesser extent, NOI, like the big deep water offshore platforms, we're not getting an adequate amount of investment there. Am I really bullish this year? No. Am I really bullish next year? Maybe by 2021, it starts to become a much more serious problem. Since we look out by 2023 or 2025, you start to create a big hole because of that lack of investment in long-term prices because people have no confidence in the future to make those type of investments, nor are they trading out that far on the curve. And right now, everything is on a prompt basis. So, Jeff, you've been in and around this industry, deep in the industry for decades now. What's the thing that you'd say about the commodity market that's most misunderstood? The size of the investor community in commodities, it's always substantially overestimated. When I started these markets, probably when you were back in the aluminum industry, there were very few investors. In fact, I like to say there was no hedge funds that traded commodities when I started in the 1990s. They started to grow in size in the 2000s when you had a trending market. Even so, I'm going to put some numbers around the size of the investor community in these markets. When you look at the total open interest of the oil market, obviously 50% of it is on the producer side, meaning real people who produce oil, copper, aluminum, selling forward commodities. And that's why they were invented. If you actually look at the original futures markets, they were the agriculture markets invented for farmers to hedge out the production. Exactly. So they're 50% of the market. The other 35% of the market are going to be consumers. Consumers like airlines, in car, the companies. car company for metals. Um, and then you're left over with about 15% of the market that are investors. They're always on the long side, mostly on the long side. Let me make that point as to why. When we think about oil, you have these big, large entities that can sell oil, but you and I are the consumers of oil at the pump. We're not going to hedge which is why you have a mismatch. You have a lot more big concentrated producers that can sell, but a unconcentrated group of consumers. So there you need the investors to fill that gap. They represent about 15% of the market. Of that 15, 10 of it are what we call passive investors that trade these commodity indices. That's like our pension funds hedging now our gasoline price risk. And then 5% of the market are the hedge funds. Let's call them active investors. The rest of that group is strategic or passive, so only 5% of it. But I have to point out that 5% represents around 75% of the trading volume. So they pack a big punch, which is why we focus on them, but they are relatively small. And so if you ask me, you know, what's the common misperception is that if you read the newspapers, you'd think that the entire commodity market was driven by a bunch of speculators. That's just not the case. Yeah. Last question. We just got into the new year. What's one of your New Year's resolutions? 
Well, I look back. What was the biggest mistake we made last year? We got hoodwinked by too optimistic sentiment. My resolution in 2019 is not to get hoodwinked again, this time by not as negative a sentiment. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining the program. It's great to have you on. Excellent. Thanks for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on January 10th, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.